Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fia Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you, Fia. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. I always sound, it always sounds a bit like we're kind of looking down and checking that we're we're still here. We're all right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we should move on, move on swiftly there um, because we really best get going. We've got so much to get through. I think we're pretty much aiming to circumnavigate the globe this week uh, because coming up on the show, we're going to hear about the latest novel by Anne Tyler, French Braid, a masterclass in sympathy and understanding, a tale of revenge by Japan's queen of mysteries, Kaoru Takamura, and a Second World War Reckoning in Finland by Petra Rautianen. So uh, we'll be talking primarily about new works of fiction, and for that we will be joined by Toby Lishtig, our fiction editor, who will also fill us in on a new work by Howard Jacobson, the novelist, yes, but here he will be telling us the story of his own beginnings. So plenty to come in the second half of today's episode. But now, Lucy, you're going to kick things off for us in France. Yes, we are, because we are talking about France's best known and maybe most controversial writer, Michel Houellebecq, who has been a bestseller more or less since his first book appeared in 1994. Our reviewer, Nelly Caprielian, the literary editor of the legendary magazine Les Inrocutibles, has this to say about him. As well as a best-selling novelist, he has become a social phenomenon, a rock star, a freak, a visionary genius, a political agitator, even, for some, a prophet. He's also been roundly condemned for what he writes and says about women and particularly Muslims and Islam. And earlier this year, he published a new novel amid a fairly feverish political atmosphere in France in the run up to the elections. There's a lot to unpack here. So I'm delighted that Nelly Caprielian is joining us to talk it through. And so is Russell Williams, friend of the podcast and now French consultant editor at the TLS. And he has been well back watching for years. Nelly and Russell, many thanks for joining us. Thank you, Lucy. I'm glad to be with you. A pleasure, yeah. So, Nelly, if you had to describe Welbeck's career up to now to someone who had never heard of him, how how would you do it? Do you think? Uh, well, um, it's it's a it's a roller coaster, actually. Uh, Welbeck is uh, the most famous of our writers. I think he's the the in France what we say uh, to define him. We say it's the it's the writer, the the foreign book critics envious to have. He's, he's a writer who's both a, a bestseller selling writer and a proper literary writer. Uh, it doesn't happen quite often. He's he's loved by the French. He's hated by the French. Uh, um, uh, every every two of his books are you know like scandalous and mm. then uh, the next one is is just you know uh, loved by everybody uh, he's a, indeed a social phenomenon um he's writing about france he's writing about the west 
through the the journey in life of uh, main character or several characters. Uh, it's based on his life in some ways. It's based on his uh, experiences. Uh, he has a lot of uh, humor, actually, a, a sort of dry sense of humor uh, that we all love in French, and I suppose that abroad is the same. Um, he He's famous to have brought a lot of sort of pop or daily life references into literature. He's quite outrageous because uh, he's quite reactionary, but we never exactly know how to, if it's true or not. Uh, And until now, he had never replied about those questions. He refuses to to show his true political colors. Uh, And I think it's what made, made him like sort of mystery you know a bit like a sphinx and we had all his literature to to judge or to believe or um he's also one of the most ambitious french writer um you know he's, he tries to to write about both politics um uh, philosophy he makes uh, a metaphysical question He's when I said reactionary is that, but I suppose we're going to talk about that at length. Mm-hmm. Um, he appeared in French literature when um, the political zeitgeist was very left wing. That has completely changed, actually, but it was completely left wing. The left wing political uh, parties were strong. We were still completely in this um, um, uh, May '68 uh, utopia of you know freedom of. Um, I mean, a lot of very good things, you know, like anti-racism, feminism, etc. And and he appears a bit shockingly by saying, you know, we were wrong. It's not that simple. Freedom is not great. I'm the son of a hippie mother who went, who abandoned me uh, in order to go and live in hippie communities. Uh, and and uh, the, the result is that I am, or my characters, who are basically my alter egos, are emotionally cold. They're incapable to have an access to happiness. They're incapable of loving. They're incapable of being loved. Uh, uh, all of that mixed by a charge against uh, capitalism. Mm-hmm. And what we could, we could we could have believed in a way a charge against the, the right wing because the right wing then in the 90s in France um, was mostly it was all about economy and and uh, and and Welbeck comes and say you know I hate the left the utopias from the left don't bring happiness they just leave us alone having to confront ourselves to the violence of capitalism and how in a world without God, uh, I suspect he's a Catholic, I suspect he's or sort of a sad Catholic, a mourning, uh, he's mourning God uh, in, a, in a world without God, without God, without any form of authority, without any form of belief in families, for instance, or, or, or belief in the couple, the couple uh, um, uh, we are just left uh, with fake beliefs created by um, but capi- by capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, our only freedom is to buy products, and our our only uh, illusion of happiness is to buy that kind of product. He was puncturing that as well, wasn't he? I do think it's crucial for our understanding of him that when he arrived on the scene, he was anti-establishment basically, because the establishment was very different and what he was saying was a bit surprising and a bit shocking and a bit challenging. Um, Russell, do you have anything to add to that that rather brilliant summing up? I think Nelly, you know, has really, really, you know, given a really great overview of, of, of Welbeck. I think from my perspective, you know, it used to be great fun reading a Welbeck novel. The fun came from, you know, it could be platform, it could be les particules élémentaires, it could be la carte et les territoires. Um, you'd get the novels and you'd be reading it and it would be peppered with all of these political statements, peppered with all of these observations about French day-to-day life, about monoprix, as, uh, as, as Nelly said. But you'd find yourself kind of questioning, OK, who's speaking here? Where is this voice coming from? You know, mm. is this 
um, somebody who is kind of mocking uh, the, the right reactionary uh, French figures? Or is it somebody who is kind of, you know, coming from the coming from the right wing to mock the left? He was politically ambiguous. Um, mm. and, and you'd find yourself wondering, well, does he mean this stuff? When he makes misogynistic comments, when he makes racist comments, there's this kind of um, high level of kind of, you know, pl- it was almost a, a, a playful engagement that you had with the text. It's like, does he really mean it? Um, mm. From my perspective, over the last, you know, seven or eight years, certainly post uh, soumission, um, certainly through serotonin, and now perhaps I think, as kind of Nelly argues in the piece through Anne Yontier, it seems like he meant it all along. It's not as much fun reading well because it used to be. And again, that's another crucial thing to remember, I think, about, about the impact that he made when he, when he was first published. So, Nelly, what was the run-up to the publication of this book like? Why was it so extraordinary? There was an amazing kind of anticipation about it, wasn't there? He became a sort of Cassandra. Uh, uh, well, back, uh, um, he wrote more and more about politics. For instance, uh, uh, Soumission uh, is, um, you know, sort of a very short dystopia about uh, the, actually the, the 2022 election, uh, uh, where he imagined um, a Muslim uh, party, political party, uh, winning the elections. Uh, and in Serotonin, um, it was more about, you know, his anti-Europe views and how he didn't like the, um, uh, how you call that, the fair trade imposed by, by, by Europe be- between uh, European countries that were basically killing all the work of les agriculteurs. For instance, those ones were instead of they had two choices, uh, uh, which were like committing suicide, killing themselves, or taking weapons, guns, and 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 rebel against the government. And in a way, it coincided with les gilets jaunes, with the um, movement, yes. you know, of, of these people coming from the provinces, the very poor mm. provinces, and invading, you know, les Champs Elysees, for instance, and and. Um, so for us, he's always been someone who was both, I mean, he became someone who was political and he's always been someone who was sort of a visionary in his books. Uh, so when we all learned that Welbeck was going to publish a novel in January, uh, three months before the, the elections in France, because, you know, in April, we're going to vote for our new next president, uh, uh, especially in this political turmoil that was very, very, um, um, very scary because we had basically two candidates from the far right that were quite su- successful. And one of them being Eric Zemmour, an ex-right-wing um, journalist for Le Figaro, and he's, he's huge on TV, he's always on TV, you know, and... Um, and suddenly he was, he was apparently getting a lot of success um, uh, by spreading fake theses about history, by suddenly bringing back uh, the ghosts of uh, Pétain and also uh, Dreyfus and saying that probably Dreyfus was guilty. You know, suddenly it was, it was very alarming in, in France. And, and then we when we learned that Welbeck was, was going to publish uh, his next book at that period, we thought, again, is he going to feel the, you know, the political zeitgeist in France? Is he going to reveal something? Is he going to, you know, uh, I think it's always important because very good writers are usually, I wouldn't say they're all visionaries, but they're all like feeling before us. They're feeling the, the time we live in. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Welbeck, uh, is precisely like that. And so we were very, very um, uh, impatient to, to read this book. Um, the book was, I mean, the book launch was a bit strange because we've never really seen something like that in, in France about a novel. Was It was completely protected. We didn't have access to the title, uh, to the subject, uh, uh, nor to the book. And then when we received the book, there was on the 17th of December. So basically we had uh, all the book critics in France had to read like 
700 pages during Christmas. Mm. Um, uh, we had a notice by his publisher saying that Michel Welbeck wouldn't give any interview to the press, the TV or the radio. There, would, there wouldn't be anything. And that the embargo was going to last till the 30th of December when, where they were asking us to wait for, for this date to publish our first articles on our website. And then we had the surprise of, you know, of seeing an interview in Le Monde, which is fair enough, you know, it's, it's fair game. After all, it's the biggest writer and, and Le Monde is the main newspaper. But it was all a kind of, we were thinking, have we been manipulated? Why? I mean, we've never seen something, something like that. Um, and then, sorry, <laughs> the other important point that is, uh, is that he's the, the the fi- the finance uh, minister uh, in France Bruno Le Maire who who leaked the subject of the of the novel it's so it's such an odd situation isn't it it's so weird but there's a good reason go on go and tell us why and also he, he he was wrong actually because he said uh, he was talking to um, a preeminent industrialist um, and he was saying, well, you know, you'll see the next, I've read the next uh, novel by Welbeck and it's about our sector, uh, which is not true, thank God, because uh, it would have been more, more, more boring, actually. But, uh, well, there is a bit of that, but, yeah, uh, but not, but not what too he meant much. Is that is true, and it's one, what, one thing that is interesting in Anéantir in is that he's saying, Welbeck's saying that everything is economics, everything is about even... Uh, you know, his critique against uh, capitalism and, and how in some ways the left wing has completely, has been defeated by finance and, and capitalism and consumerism. Um, um, it's, it's more or less the same in Anéantir, but worse. What he's saying is that this time politics are the puppet or puppets of finances and, 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 and of economics. And that's why the finance minister in the book, which he, who's mostly based on Bruno Le Maire, he's, he's, he's one of the most political uh, characters in the book, much more than, than the president. In the book, mm-hmm. he's also very sympathetically portrayed. He's a kind of brilliant politician, isn't he? He's a brilliant politician, plus he's, he's called judge. Uh, which means that he has yeah. this power of just justice, um, and he's uh, he's both very uh, yeah very very kind and very faithful and very you know a lot of a lot of uh, good things. But he's also not a very important character in, in many ways. You know, it's more Paul Raison, his sort of uh, assistant at yeah. the minister, that is that is the most the most important. He's going, what we understand is that Bruno Juge is going to, to be the most important uh, uh, man in the new government in, in 2027, because we are, it's again, sort of dystopia. We are in 2027. It's those elections that Michel Welbeck is writing about. And again, it means that the president has no power anymore. Uh, the guy who's elected is uh, is basically um, a TV star. You know, it's not very interesting. Uh, it will be uh, the finance minister Bruno Juge that, that he, who's going to be the most the most important character because because again, I mean, politics are completely defeated by economy. Um, and so the book follows uh, Paul Raison, who is, yeah, sort of his sort of right-hand man, isn't he? So, so there is quite a lot of talk about politics and this. These, there's these um, incidents which have been that have been videos going around the world, which look like terrorist incidents, and they're trying to work out who did them and why, and nobody knows. There's a lot about that. There's a bit about Bruno Juge and his his ministry, as it were, and, and but then it it moves basically, doesn't it, to become about Paul Raison's family life. It it, it sort of changes and becomes domestic. Yes, absolutely. So it moves. It becomes uh, about uh, Paul's father who had a stroke and, and is left paralyzed and, and goes into a, in a care home. Uh, it moves to his family, uh, his sister, who's, uh, sorry, I'm smiling because it's, it's when I began to find the, the novel a bit, um, a bit farcesque actually, because the sister is voting for the extreme right. Um, because then after, except Bruno Juge, all the characters, all the nice characters, all the loving characters, all the caring characters 
are from the extreme right. So Le Pen or further than that, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or there are ex-activists like... Um, Paul's uh, sister's husband uh, yes. is an ex-activist of the Bloc Identitaire, um, and and not none of that is questioned by Paul, who's, who's supposed to be like you know, we we can guess that it's more or less Emmanuel Macron, the president. So you know, he's not from the extreme right. He's clearly not from the extreme left. Is uh, 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 sort of. Uh, right-wing centrists. I don't know if, if uh, Russell would agree to to define Macron like that. So, so we believe that Bruno Juge is the same and that Paul Raison is the same. So I thought it's a bit odd that this character is always like talking about and loving people who are voting for the extreme right without questioning that at all. Yeah, I found it remarkable that they are very loving and forgiving. I mean, to him, this is an important thing to say as well, which I was going to bring up later, is that the characters, uh, even if you see them as avatars, which is very difficult not to, if you see them as avatars of Welbeck, they're not brilliant, admirable characters who we want to emulate. Are they, Russell? I mean, they're not people having a great time who've got it all figured out. (laughs) No, I think we can safely say that. Yeah, no, I think... um... I think we certainly can. I think it's funny. Um, uh, Nelly mentioned that, um, that, that the press got the chance to read the novel over the Christmas period. And the, 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 the thought of actually spending 750 pages over Christmas with Welbeck and his characters, whatever the subject of the novel, was, was, wasn't really going to be that appealing because um, things get worse in Welbeck novels. Bad things happen to characters. They never end well. I'm sorry, that's a terrible spoiler for anybody who hasn't read this <laughs> book yet, but 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 it's no great surprise that that, that this is going to end badly. But I'm gonna be slightly provocative at this point, and I'm not even sure if this novel is the big political novel that we've been framing it as so far, because yes. You know, it sets a lot of it is set in Bercy, the French Ministry of Finance. But it's actually the moment that the protagonist's father gets moved into a care home that I actually found kind of strangely affecting. Um, And things don't kind of go well from that point on. And there is a kind of ludicrous kind of farcical moment where the family decide to to rescue him from the care home. But (laughs) this is a novel, you know, and and, and, and we're in the, um, you know, we're in the kind of Benny Hill or or, or, or even Jack (laughs) Patti style kind of slapstick here for a moment. But but actually, this is is a novel about death and dying um, as much as it is about politics. Um, And I found myself thinking that actually earlier this year, um, one of the big news stories, um, one of the big kind of agenda setting topics in the French media wasn't about that. This is before everybody really got into the election. It was a book about um, a piece of investigative journalism by a journalist called Victor Castanet, um, which was a close investigation of what goes on in the French care home system. Um, and, it, and it was debated. It was on the front page of the newspapers for a, a few days. And actually, the exploration of the politics of how we treat our elderly, how we treat um, people at the end of life, is something that Welbeck's been interested in for a little bit of time. And I'm not sure if this is... Um, uh, something that reflects his own kind of concerns about getting old um, or what have you. But there is, you know, a, particularly in the, um, in the in the final third of the novel, which is the f- bleakest final third out of any of Welbeck's novels so far. And that's saying something. That's quite an accolade. It really is. Um, <laughs> it's also quite an interesting piece of literary criticism as well. Because the final third of the novel, and again, another spoiler, the major character gets a really nasty cancer and eventually dies. But there's a lot of um, a, a, a textual consideration of a book by Philippe Lanson, um, the, the the literary critic who who um, from from uh, Liberation, who was at Charlie Hebdo the day of uh, the terrorist attack there, who published his own kind of um, memoir about rehabilitation, um, proximity to death in uh, Le Lambeau, which is tr- translated into English as disturbance. And so kind of Welbeck's sort of building on, on that in quite, um, quite an interesting and sometimes a little bit of a beautiful way. So here's a really blunt question then. Is this a good book? I mean, is it well constructed, well written? 
I was very disappointed. Uh, I was very disappointed. I'm a huge fan of, of, of Welbeck. You know, we've been following him since his beginnings. I've been, you know, when he, he's been attacked a lot, a lot um, by, by the press in France. Um, I've been defending him all the time because he used to be, for me, one of the greatest writers, if not the great, greatest French writer. Um, so I can say I was very disappointed by, by this book. At some point, I thought it was a hoax, actually, that it, it wasn't written by him, that he's been writing by something else. I didn't recognize his style. And, and even if his ideas or, or project was reactionary, like as I was saying, saying that uh, maybe it was, it was, we were happier before when we had God and we had sort of order and when families were very important. So it, it was a reactionary pro, uh, project, but the way he was writing was very modern, actually. There was something like, we don't want, I don't want to write with what you think you French, the French style should be. Mm. Um, it was really like coming from the, the, the rock scene, coming from, you know, again, the daily life, coming from like just people um uh but now i i i don't find his style anymore i find his style completely absent i think the the, the phrases were quite only functional uh you know a character should do this and that you know it was quite flat uh, uh the sense of humor has mostly disappeared mm. um and in, in instead of having you know these little asides that were as as uh, russell was saying you know always quite funny or philosophical or metaphysical or existential. Now it was, I mean, they've been replaced by other sides, but they were all quite, I mean, really deeply unpleasant and quite gratuitous. And I don't know if yeah. you want to talk about that. That's exactly what the, yeah. the phrase I was going to use, because yeah. this character, Paul Raison, who you, you sort of identify with, you know, to to a certain point, you're following his his story. Yeah. What happens to him? He says eye watering and horrible things about women, Muslims, black people. Very much yeah. as a side, he's he's not making an yeah. argument. He just says it as though it's a given. The same way that you might say it's a nice day or oh look, it started exactly. raining. Kind of extraordinary. I was thinking if this was the first book that somebody had read by him, and they didn't know anything about him. They would just think, what what's going on here? Why is he Absolutely. saying this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, and, and we didn't have that in the previous books, not at this level. Uh, uh it was I think it's it's a very pernicious book, actually. And and that's why I was I was really disappointed, really disappointed because um, in appearances, it's a book about love and compassion. You know, as Russell was saying at the end, when Paul has a cancer in this in this world where you know we are beyond ideologies in this world because the ideologies don't work anymore in front of money and and finances and this, that kind of cynicism. When we are in a world where you know politics are the puppets of again money, when we are all manipulated, where uh, the, the only response will be probably a, a revolution to come. It begins by those strange videos by terrorists actually mm -hmm. um and we are going to die so how do we do so uh his response is uh, we find a refuge in love and in our couple actually with someone um the problem is that you know so it looks like oh Welbeck has become loving and for him now it's love and it's love for a woman so he's not a misogynist anymore actually the problem is that this book is full of hatred you know, it's full of little remarks that are just pure discriminations. And we don't know why so many feels the need to write them. Uh, because is it the character? Is it the writer? It's not clear. And it's really, really unpleasant. And I felt a bit um, disgusted, actually, by all of that. Well, what did you think about, about that, Russell? I have to admit, my first instinct or my first feeling on having read the book was one of relief right I'll explain that um 
I thought I thought that Soumission, um, the book from from two ago, was was a paranoid conspiracy theory that was ushering in this kind of noxious belief and this fear about uh, the Muslim takeover of France. Um, I thought Sevatonin was 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 lazy. I thought it was a moan uh, uh, and revisiting all all of his lost loves. Um, I was actually uh, relieved that this novel was not a direct and clear pro-Zemmour political intervention in in that quite obvious way. I didn't find it quite as... Um, you know, maybe I'm maybe I become battle hardened to Welbeck. Um, I didn't necessarily find it as disturbing, as outrageous as some of his other books, particularly the previous two. But what I did find it was that it was a hundred pages too long. Um, I also found it particularly really, really patchy. There are moments I think of kind of uh, some kind of emotional tenderness and emotional honesty, but they're all too few. Um, let's not forget, this is also a novel that has long digressions about the Wiccan religion. It has long digressions about the Matrix 3. Oh, God, I could have done without that one. Uh, it really does. <laughs> uh, it, it also, in, in the style of a Dan Brown thriller, it also has pictures and diagrams. Um, so there is, in the opening 15 pages, a, an image of exactly what a, what a guillotine looks like. There, there, there's a full page Baphomet which, lest we forget, is the half-human, half-animal figure that the Knights Templar was supposed to have worshipped. It's, it's, it's a very, very strange work. Um, and all of these kind of parts, the political thriller, um, the, the dad in the care home, the Wiccan religion, the Matrix 3, the, 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 the death from cancer. <laughs> this isn't what a novel's supposed to look like. Where's the harmony? Where's the beauty? Um, and... In that kind of way, it, it's kind of weirdly interesting. That's, that's probably about as far as I'm prepared to go on the positive today. <laughs> what I was going to say to you both is about these, these viewpoints, and also, Nelly, in your piece, I think you're making the case that the, the book reveals something plainly about Welbeck, which has been unspoken before, which, about his sympathies, which, uh, which seem to be far-right sympathies, as far as one can tell. I suppose there is always the, the difficult thing to... To, you have to put the distance between Welbeck the person and Welbeck the, the, the author. Um, does this book promote those viewpoints, the worldview of the far right? I'm afraid so, actually. I'm, 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 I'm sorry to say yes. Uh, because, you know, when, uh, Russell, when you say, you know, it's not about Zemmour, which is true, and he's not promoting Zemmour, but all of the little... Uh, you know, notes, thoughts uh, that he's putting is is very Zemmourish, uh, and and we know in interviews, Michel said several several times that he find he finds Zemmour completely brilliant, and so it's 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 quite difficult to be to be blind actually in front of those. I'd, I'd love I'd love to be frankly, um, but but so I'm not saying that Michel Welbeck is uh, from the extreme right. I'm not I'm not saying that he's going to vote for the extreme right, he's probably not going to vote because he's, you know, he's for the, the direct democracy. He wants people, the, the people to be able to vote for any and every decision. He's against that kind of government. He's against that kind of politics to begin with. So, but the problem is that the glasses through which he's looking at the world and he's translating the world, it, it, they, they are from the extreme right. You know, you, you can't say uh, that, you know, a, a, a black kid is too black. I mean, you can't, say, you can't say things like that. You can't say that women are better in the kitchen or in bed. You know, yeah. we're talking about what here? You know, yeah. so what I don't like in the book and what I find very unpleasant, and I think in the past he was he was braver, actually, is also the, the lack of courage, you know, have the courage of what you're, you're, you're meaning, you know, have the courage, write a book directly about that. Of course, there are things that are interesting. Of course, it's, you know, it's, it's metaphysical view that, that love is uh, the most important thing in life nowadays, probably, and that we have to find a refuge uh, with each other. Of, of, how can't we disagree with that? You know, And of mm. course, it's interesting. And of course, he's an interesting and brilliant man. But this time, I'm sorry, we can't let ourselves being blinded by the main plot or the main story 
and, and lose track of what he's saying because those <laughs> little words are very, very important. It is completely yeah. insidious. Although Welbeck has always used these little asides from, from, from his first novel, The Extension du Domaine de la Lutte, all the way through, there have always been these kind of little kind of offhand comments. It's like the experience of, of going into a bar and a kind of uh, a drunk barfly will start kind of giving you all of these extreme kind of right opinions and you have to say, okay, well, thank you very much and move along. Um, it, it, they've always been there, but I think what is possibly interesting or possibly less interesting about Anéantir is the comments such as that previously have always been offset by something else, whether there's a degree of kind of irony or whether there's humour. I can't see too much of the kind of redeeming otherness um, in, in this novel. It sounds from what you're both saying that we might be reaching some kind of tipping point probably isn't the right way of putting it, but I'm wondering who will go on to continue to read Welbeck in a sense, because if it's, if it's mostly been, you know, the left-wing elite that he targets uh, who have so far found his novels to be good and troubling if now they're only troubling and not so good anymore where does that leave him I mean is the angry right-wing racist demographic in France big on buying novels no not really actually because the the book is less a success that it, it should have been uh, so it's a, it's a, it's there, there is hope in France. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there is hope that nobody will going, read it. <laughs> I'm going, I'm going to read him, and I'm sure uh, I'm to go on reading Welbeck, and I'm sure Russell will do the same, uh, uh, out of curiosity, because maybe the next one will be completely different. But I will never forget what I've read in Anéantir. You know, yeah. uh, Anéantir can also mean uh, so it's an, annihilate in English, but it can also mean eliminate. Indeed. Uh, and, and, and eliminate. It's eliminating what and whom? I mean, what I loved in, in, in Welbeck's previous books is that, yes, he was reactionary. And, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm reactionary at all. But I was very, very interested because it was always from a, also a philosophical point of view on top of a political one. So I want to see how he's going to, to evolve. My problem with Anéantir, and that's probably why now, even if I'm going on reading Welbeck, I'll be really cautious, uh, is that... From being reactionary, he's become discriminatory. Not a system that he's rejecting, is the other. The other being uh, the one who's not like him, which means the, the non-heterosexual and the non-white, the non-male or non-heterosexual, because there's also, also some, something about being uh, homosexual that is not, you know, real love, that wouldn't be real love for him. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and the, the non-Christian, the non-Catholic. Uh, so it's, it's. Um, I'm curious. I'm curious to yeah. see where yeah. he's going to go now. Thea, um, you made a really interesting comment. Or there's an interesting question about about the reading habits of the French extreme right. Um, but uh, four or five years ago, the French radio station France Inter um, had a, a story where they unveiled what was on the summer reading list for activists um, as part who, who who were adhering to the Front National, the French kind of far right, um, one of the French far right political parties. And on that list was a collection of essays by the likes of Renaud Camus and Alan Finkelkraut. There was one novel. And that novel was a novel, of course, by Michel Welbeck. I think it was Soumission. So I, th I think it's interesting is actually, you know, how is Welbeck being read, you know, mm. by the extreme right? Is he being read, you know, as a kind of ironist or is he being read as some kind of weird, you know, fictional um, or, 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 you know, of fictionalized version of reality? Because it's mm. quite interesting that, that, that Welbeck has emerged um, over the last couple of years um, as a kind of proof of concept that has been, you know, um, used in the American alt-right. You know, they're like, you know, this is, this guy's got it right. This guy has a correct vision of the future. Um, really? So it's kind of interesting how he's kind of passed um, outside France into, into this kind of discussion. And I think one of the things, um, and, and again, this is something that, um, that, that, that Nelly wonderfully alludes to um, in the piece, is that Welbeck has had the French 
far right circles kind of cozying up to him and he has never done anything to distance himself from them you know he's cultivated friendships um he's appeared at events sponsored by uh, valet actuel you know the, yeah, um, exactly. the extreme right magazine so you know he hasn't he hasn't said uh hang on guys i'm not part of your gang um and i think maybe anayantir could be seen as a kind of uh as a kind of acceptance that you know this is this is maybe where he's coming from yeah exactly we could talk about this for hours and there will be more to talk about as well after the elections won't there but i know that nelly you you said in your piece that you think the the french have got a problem sort of incorporating right-wing far right-wing writers in into the canon is that right it's exactly right. You know, I was surprised when Anéantir was published in January that we were just a few journalists to say, but wait, I mean, it's, 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 it's difficult to read those, those you know, uh, little lines against uh, the black people. I think my explanation is that, yeah, we don't know what to do with Louis Ferdinand Céline, for instance. Mm. You know, can we say he's a great writer? Or not considering that he he wrote you know uh, anti-Semitic propaganda, um, uh, can we say the same with you know there is always as if we were like terrified with that we don't know what to do with with these writers basically so if we accept that there are good writers how can they be good writers if they are so fascist for instance or can they be fascist and be a good writer can they be fascist and be intelligent for instance it's a sort of endless embarrassment in france okay maybe we should call the podcast an endless embarrassment <laughs> we won't but it's a good title for, for something else um thank you so much both of you this is brilliant and we could have talked about it for hours but we'll, we'll have to stop there for now so thank you nelly caprielian thank you lucy very much and thank you russell williams thanks a lot Still to come on the show, the quieter pleasures of reading Anne Tyler, a darkly simmering page-turner from Japan, and an amalgam of detective story and Second World War history from Finland. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free, wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you will never miss an episode. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi. And now before we go any further on our travels through new fiction, I'm pleased, relieved even to say that Toby Lishtig, our fiction editor, is here to act as our guide. Toby, lovely to have you with us. 
Hello, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm glad to be providing relief of some sort. <laughs> She's relieved because it's not just me. She's like, oh, good. <laughs> uh, right, so before we crack on with the fiction, you, uh, Toby, have reviewed a book by Howard Jacobson, uh, who is obviously best known as a novelist, but here in Mother's Boy, he's giving us a memoir. It's, it's subtitled A Writer's Beginning. So where does that, where does he take us to? Well, he takes us really, I mean, he, he, we start at the beginning um, and it takes us in a way to the end of his career. So he's, he's 80 now, or he's about to be 80 and he's sort of looking back on his career. But really it ends with his success, which, which happens within early midlife. He was nearly 40 when he published his first novel. And that is sort of where it takes us to, but but from the vantage point of now, if that makes sense. And there's an interesting line um, in, in one of his novels. It's his alter ego, in fact, uh, who, who speaks it. And he says the impulse to write is an impulse to alter the conditions of your childhood. So is this borne out by Jacobson's own work? And if you know, so how? <laughs> um, I suppose we'd have to ask Howard Jacobson that. I, I wasn't I wasn't there during during his childhood. But <laughs> Were you not? I, <laughs> I, no, I was I, I was doing other things. Um, <laughs> but I, I yes, I, I think it probably is. I mean, he you know, like like many novelists, he's been reworking his life story throughout his career, and he's been revisiting his both his early years and his student years and his early teaching years and various other points. A lot of it comes down to Jewishness and his conception mm. of Jewishness and his tussle with Jewishness. And I think he's been revisiting and reworking his relationship with Jewishness throughout his career. And I think that is very much his attempt to alter those conditions and alter his his own sort of feeling, both as an outsider, as a, as a Jew in, in, in growing up in Manchester, although he was part of a, sort of a fairly established Jewish community, but also as an outsider to Jewishness. I don't think he's ever felt certainly not as a, as a kid that he felt particularly at home in the Jewish community either so it's about the sort of the tussle between all, all those different aspects of him. Mm, this was an, an, an ambivalence that he had to grapple with from from the beginning of his career as a writer I suppose it's the, the puzzle that he had to work out before he could write his first novel. It, exactly I think you know he first started harboring literary ambitions as a very young man probably as a kid from what I gather from this memoir but you know really at university it really took him about 20 years to work it out. Um, and there's, there's a line which I quote in my piece, if, if it was being Jewish that held me back, it was being Jewish that got me going. Um, essentially what happened was, I think he felt that he didn't want, as a younger man, he didn't want to write about Jewishness, he wanted to be part of the English literary tradition. He was he was tutored at Cambridge by F.R. Levis, who was a huge influence on him. And he wanted to be part of this sort of Austin, Henry James, Dickens, these sort of big famous English novelists and he was trying to write like them and emulate them and it was only really later on that he suddenly had this epiphany oh wait a sec write about what you know and he makes his protagonist Jewish and then suddenly Mm. it all kind of works from there yeah and so he becomes the preeminent author of British Jewish novels exactly exactly and I've called him you know I've sort of said he's sort of the preeminent British Jewish author but you know I wouldn't want to start entering a, a kind of competition on, you know, who is Jewish, is it Jewish and half Jewish and whether they're preeminent or, or not. But I think very few people in this country would dispute the fact that he is the preeminent author of the British Jewish novel, mm. i.e. his novels are, are, are full of Jewish characters. They grapple with themes of Jewishness, not exclusively, of course. He goes off in various directions and there are, he's even had a protagonist who isn't Jewish, but I don't want to do too many comparisons to Philip Roth because I know that would particularly annoy Howard Jacobson. But <laughs> in the same way that Philip Roth's novels are both very, very American, but also they're very much Jewish American Howard Jacobson's novels are Jewish British and actually despite you know despite the Jewish British literary tradition there aren't that many oeuvres that are quintessentially British Jewish it's quite it's actually it remains quite a marginal thing I would say that's really interesting um, and, and that that line that you quoted a moment ago where you said about his um how he said that his Jewishness is the thing that's held him back as well as being the thing that, that kind of uh pushed him forward he he speaks that line to his to his mother, doesn't he? Who, you know, unsurprisingly, given the the title of this book, is 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 a major figure here. So, what do we learn about her? She is a major figure, and actually, despite the title, it's also a lot about his father. But we can we can we can come on to that in a little bit. But yes, we do, what we learn about her is that there's, there's a very moving opening in which Jacobson says basically his mother dies during him writing this. I mean, she was very very old; she was in her late nineties, and he sort of continues to address her throughout as if she was still alive and refer to her as if she was still alive because I think you know he'd already 
he'd already tackled the, that book as if she was still there. And he says to her, I'm going to write about being Jewish and how important it was to me as a, as a novelist. And she sort of says, like, Howard, oh, you're not, you're not going to be cruel, are you? You're not going to be too mean. <laughs> and so I think a, a lot of his sense of being Jewish was to do with his own relationship with his mother. And it's, it sounds like it was a very cerebrally rich relationship, but also a slightly awkward one. I mean, I think he says somewhere in the book, you know, ours was a a relationship of the mind not of the body you know they, they were quite sort of physically awkward with each other and didn't say things like I love you and her own relationship with Jewish was fairly ambivalent as well I mean his parents weren't particularly religious they, he refers to them and I'm not sure if it was in this memoir or somewhere else as you know as, as bagel Jews you know they ate the food and they they had the mitzvahs and they turned up to the weddings but they didn't you know go to synagogue regularly or believe in God and he was sort of one step apart from them in terms of his Jewishness. But it's, yeah, it's about kind of his, his grappling with both that and, and his mother and his father as well, who was a huge influence on him um, and very different from him in many ways. Um, not literary, you know, didn't read particularly, um, was quite a sort of dominant figure in the household. And I think a, a lot of Jacobson's writing over the years has been a kind of way of working out his relationship with his father there was his very famous novel the mighty waltzer which came out in the late 90s i think it was 1999 which is partly about his father who was a magician and also worked on a market stall and he he, he um fictionalizes him brilliantly there but he also he appears a lot in this memoir as this sort of ghost to whom jacobson talks does he have siblings or is it just him and an intense relationship with mum and dad? No, he has <laughs> siblings. He has two younger siblings. I think it's a brother and a sister. And I say I think, because although I've read this book, they don't really figure. In, in fact, it is. It's a brother and a sister. But he, he sort of makes some very Jacobson-esque comment like, oh, they, they turned up and my beautiful childhood where I was the centre of the attention, centre of my mother's attention, centre of my aunt's attention was suddenly blown out of the water and I sort of resented them ever since. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of says it in a jokey way and you, you yeah. never quite know how serious he's being and that's part of his shtick. But he doesn't really come back to them very much and there is, there's a real guardedness in this memoir as well or, or at least a performativity. It's very much about Howard and it's very much about his, his sort of intellectual journey and his writing and he, he very much, it's his prerogative, he's the writer, but he very much chooses to include what he wants to include. And there's very little of the siblings, there's very little about his son. Um, he's on his third marriage, so there, there is a bit about the two ex-wives. But we sort of get to Howard in middle age, having written his first novel, kind of also not knowing quite a lot about him. Well, that's, that's interesting, isn't it, as well? Because the book is, all, is also partly, you suggest an account of, of, of his failures, his failure to be Jewish enough to be... A good husband to be a father he he does essentially walk out on his son I think yeah um but he doesn't really go as deep uh, as as you say just now he doesn't really go as deep as he might have in a memoir is that is that itself a bit of a failure really or if not a failure then a shortcoming can we let <laughs> does he get away with that I think yes and yes I think it's possibly a bit of a shortcoming but then it would be a different book and I think he does get away with it partly because he's all about performance and this is one of his performances and it's a funny book and it's a, and it's you know what he wants to look at is the makings of a writer and and I, I guess you know th these these are the areas he wants to focus on possibly you know possibly he could have talked more about for example his son and I, I wonder whether that was a sort of a, a decision that that was it was the right decision as a father but maybe the wrong decision mm. as a writer <laughs> but I can't you know I, can't, I don't feel like I want to come down too harshly on him for not talking about his relationship with his son because I guess that would be a different sort of book mm. and there's actually a, a book I, I I read at the same time it's a monograph about how Jacobson and about his career by this um critic called David Browner and he he says early on in this book that there's an element of performance to all of Jacobson's writing and I think that's very much that's very much true of this book mm. is this is his performance this is his dance yeah well I mean there's no easy uh segue to be made now from Howard Jacobson to Anne Tyler uh who's <laughs> on do it anyway <laughs> They're quite different, aren't they? They are quite. I mean, I'm I'm relieved that it wasn't that we're not going straight from from Welbeck, to be honest. Um, yes, let's let's turn to Anne Tyler because uh, Lucy, you've reviewed her new novel, French Braid. Um, I mean, I suppose you could say we could say that they're both concerned with normal, in inverted commas, families and how individuals fit into them. Um, I don't know about normal, but families, yeah. Well, certainly. definitely you need those inverted commas. <laughs> yeah. um, but so tell us tell us about the Garretts, Lucy. Well, the Garretts are the family that the book centres on, and it's that you, you get three generations of them. It starts with one generation, then it skips back two, and then it goes back to the middle one. And um, 
it's a very conventional setup. It's, it's the mum and the dad and the three children and what happens to them in their, you know, very ordinary and also very extraordinary life because life happens to them. I said in the piece somewhere that she's big on endurance. I've heard her say that one time. She just wants to see what happens when people just put their head down and carry on in the face mm. of whatever's going on. And she does it very beautifully, I have to say. Mm. Um, and the story sort of unfurls, I guess, from a place called Deep Creek Lake, doesn't it? So, I mean, not not Baltimore, as as is often the case with Tyler's novels. Um, well, they so- are in Baltimore, of course. Of course they live in Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they go on one holiday. It's like the first holiday that the family takes when the eldest child is 17. And then the middle one is 15. And the youngest is, I think, seven. And they go to this place, Deep Creek Lake. And she describes this kind of weak very minutely from the point of view of the of the eldest child and that's I think that's the only uh, it's the only time you get her point of view Mm. Uh, and there's a couple of events that go on which resonate throughout the next 30 40 50 years Um, and again they're not you know they're not uh, huge shocking events it's not murders and things like that but it's Mm. things that that um, it's it's um, it's things that are felt very deeply and that's the thing with Anne Tyler, isn't it? It's quite often these these events, and then how they how, how they sort of echo down the years, and how they're remembered differently by different people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So there's the so the youngest son, David, for the rest of his life, he's a bit detached from the rest of the family, and everyone's got a different theory about it. And it's not right until the end that you hear what he feels about it. Um, though again, quite near the end, you hear you hear the others discussing that they think it was the summer of the plumber, they call it. Um I didn't have time to to, to put this in the in the review the, no, the time intrigued. when he had <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very sad it wasn't in the movie. No, I'm sorry, I didn't have enough room. It's really interesting because it's it's quite a plausible theory for for why he is de- detached and 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 you know you think oh well maybe that's it. Um, it's when he's he's at college and he's a very sensitive, um, imaginative child and and continues to be. He's very interested in theatre and stuff like that. Uh, and he goes off to study that and then he comes back in the summer. His dad says, right, you're going to have to get a job. I'm not just going to pay for you to kind of, you know, laze around uh, reading plays or whatever. And so he makes him work either, I mean, with a plumber, I think, sort of more or less as an apprentice plumber, doing the, doing the really hard, boring, awful bits. Um, and he really doesn't want to do this and he doesn't have any choice and he has to do it and he has an awful time and he goes back to university and then he doesn't really come back um, for the holidays much after that, presumably, I mean, possibly to try and avoid another summer of the plumber. And so the others think, well, maybe it was the summer of the plumber that did it. And and, and the dad is going, well, you've got to do it. You know, sometimes you've got to just roll your sleeves up and do something you don't like and, and be a man and, you know, take what there is type thing. And um, no spoilers, but this is not always the right approach. <laughs> Good to know. Lessons in parenting. Um yeah. There's there's generally a lot of flashing back and forth, although maybe flashing isn't isn't, isn't the right word in, in terms of time. It's it's something more fluid than that, I think. So how does Anne Tyler how does she handle time in, in this novel? What's what's the span? You've you've talked about three generations and and you know flashing back to these incidents, but I think she she brings it really, really up to the contemporary moment, doesn't she? She does, and and she talks about the pandemic, which I found very surprising. Uh, and and up until uh, I think I, I put this in the piece up until the last uh, novel she wrote, the last novel was The Redhead by the Side of the Road. She made a couple of references to uh, distressing news on the radio that the central character is trying to kind of keep out of his mind. And it's stuff about, you know, children being put in cages on the borders. So it's, it's fairly clear references to stuff that was happening in the Trump presidency, which up until then was the most direct reference to current events that that I'd ever read in an Anne Tyler book. Uh, and this time, as I say, she deals with a pandemic and you go, oh gosh, it's just very unexpected for her to do that. Um, but then because of the timescale, because the book actually begins in 2010, she couldn't not deal with it anyway, because she's going mm-hmm. up to this time and she deals with it brilliantly. It, it doesn't take very long. There's just a little kind of vignette of um, the grandparents taking the taking the grandson who's visiting and they take him out for walks he can say hello to all the kids, you know, they're very worried about him socialising and he can sort of say hello to them and they can, I think they can play hopscotch maybe, but they can't play anything else, mm. you know, where they get any nearer to each other. And his his mum is working in New York in the 
in in a hospital. So it's all pretty fraught. Mm. And and so they worry about, you know, the effect of that, that that will have on him. But also they're completely delighted because they get these weeks with their son and their grandson and they're just having this, you know, they're having a lovely time with him. And it's a very swiftly realised good sort of summing up or evocation, I suppose, of that time. And is there, I mean, there often isn't in, in Anne Tyler, but um, is there a, a central character here or, or does she sort of diffuse diffuse the focus equally? Not equally, but she does diffuse the focus, yeah. Every time you're in one person's chapter, you think, oh, okay, this is it. This is this is what I'm, you know, this is the real viewpoint. This is how it really goes. And then you move on to the next person who you might have been disapproving of. And then you think, oh, right. Oh, I see. That's why I was trying to say that it's, it's an amazing exercise in kind of sympathy. But really, probably the central character ends up being Mercy Garrett, who is the, the mum, who on the holiday seems like a rather flighty and slightly sort of disengaged, not paying much attention type person because she's she's off painting a lot of the time and then it turns out that she's really serious about painting it follows her trajectory as well the fact that she's a painter is is, is one thing but I mean is it is it too easy to Antile as a painter as well is it too easy to sort of think of her as a a bit of an alter ego um for the writer do you think I think it is I think it, yeah I don't tempting though it may be Mm, I, I I I don't think so and and she she kind of does that Antile because in a lot of the books there's one or often two themes that you might that you might come across like so this is called French braid and there is a reference to that sort of thing and there's also in her paintings Mercy's paintings she homes in on one very small detail she'll do a room she doesn't do people or landscape Mm. she does a room or the outside of a house and she'll do one tiny detail like the bottom of a chair leg or you know something like that very very small detail and I was saying in the piece is this is this, you think for a minute, oh, is this is this what Aunt Tyler's doing? She's zooming in and she's showing mm. us what's important and this is what's important. And then I thought, no, she's not doing that because <laughs> she's not the kind of writer to go, look, look, this is the important bit. You know, yeah. this is what you should think. She she shows you uh, a multiplicity. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, this is this must be what, her 20, 24th novel, yep. something like that? Her yeah, 24th. Though she 24th. doesn't like the first four or five I think I've heard her say yeah she's kind of she said she's like she'd like to burn quite a lot of her early work didn't she say oh, that? well, that's, yeah, that's a bit quite that's extreme, a bit extreme. <laughs> yeah. I am I think Howard Jacobson's written 24 books as well so that could have been your segue oh there we go <laughs> oh, so they're, in fact they're probably 24. about the same age aren't they yeah they probably are <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if he wants to burn any of his early books that's that's I hadn't realized that she was quite so extreme about about that, yeah she really doesn't work. like them yeah mm. okay well um we're running out of time, and I want to make sure that we we give the the rest of the fiction pages a bit of a um, a bit of a showing. So, um, tell us about those, Toby. Tell us about the Queen of Mysteries and this this new novel by her, Lady Joker. Yes, but well, I mean it's a new old novel, as in it's newly translated. So it was originally um, published in Japan about twenty five years ago, um, and it's by this Japanese novelist called Kaoru Takamura. Um, who is, well, she is very big in Japan. She is, um, as you say, she's known as the Queen of Mysteries. She's written many, many books and she's been garlanded with many prizes. And this is the first time she has appeared in another language anywhere, in any other language. She's now, I think, in her late 60s. Um, And it's kind of quite bizarre that actually she hasn't received an English translation or any other translation. But it's the the first volume of a trilogy. Um, I mean, this... This book alone is 600 pages, so it's a really weighty trilogy. And it's basically, um, I will describe it as our reviewer, Brian Koretnik, has described it. A tense psychological thriller that takes unflinching aim at the injustices blighting Japan, including corporate criminality, political and financial corruption, resurgent nationalism and organised crime. Um, And it's basically, there are sort of two time periods that it looks at. One is the immediate post-war period and, and and something went on in this in this in this firm and then we sort of fast forward 40 years later in which the fallout of the thing that happened is has sort of reared its head again and um it sort of unleashes this this you know, whole whole investigation and it sounds really 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 fascinating and and it, it closely mirrors real life events isn't it real life crimes Yes, exactly, exactly. I think I think exactly. It was it, it was based on a on a on a real firm, and it's 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 partly to do with the mistreatment of this underclass um, of so called hereditary untouchables. The, the word in Japanese is burakumin. I must confess, I had never heard of the burakumin. Like what? Like they Dalits. Were called Dalits, yeah, yeah in, in India. Exactly. Gosh. Yeah, they were still a thing. 
in the 50s. And I think there was still a certain amount of discrimination against people who were deemed from that class as late as the 90s when this book was mm. being written. I am afraid I don't know anything about their status today, whether it's mm. still a, you know, or, or, or whether there's even been a kind of a, a sort of resurgent pride in coming from that um, you know that background I, I really know very little about it but that's partly that's partly what the book's about and discrimination towards them and the way they were treated both by this company and also by the police and, and other elements of the authorities. Um, there's another corner I mean there are so many um, uh, corners that I know nothing about but um, there's another corner of, of um, time and place covered in in the second fiction wartime battles and allegiances of of Finland with with Russia and and Germany and I have to yeah I, I admit I'm pretty ignorant um so how, tell tell us about this novel and and what the, the author does sure and, and and in fact there are there are themes and one of the reasons why I paired them on a page it's quite a nice diptych because it's it's also about kind of post post war reckonings with with um sort of nationality and place in the world but it's also about a discrimination of an underclass because it's about it's about the the Sami. Mm. who are the kind of um well they they're, they're reindeer herders and um they were they were treated uh, appallingly by the nazis during the war um and it's so it's 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 partly about finland's war with russia and then it's uh so that happened in the in the early 40s um there was the winter war and then the so-called continuation war which sort of carried on until the kind of mid 40s to do with finland's wavering allegiances with Germany with Nazi Germany in battle against Russia and then it's sort of switch away from Nazi Germany so that's the kind of historical backdrop and there are two narratives one is the diary of a soldier during this war a Finnish soldier and the other is a narrative of this woman after the war who's coming back to look for her husband who has either ended up in a Nazi concentration camp in Finland or in a gulag or something else we don't know and you know the reviewer hasn't given away the game but it sounds really good it sounds really really interesting I mean we don't need to draw too many crude comparisons between what's going on in this book and and Russian aggression today but it you know I think it would be particularly interesting to read it now obviously it's not just Ukraine that's that's being called into question Finnish neutrality itself which was a facet of the war and the post-war settlement is also coming back into question and and it's just yeah it sounds like a a really interesting excavation of that history and Finland's full relationship with its Russian neighbour as well as you know a pretty thrilling noirish detective style novel. Yeah I think it's described as an amalgam of of uh, history and, and detective fiction and the the author Petra Rautianen is it? Yes, I think that's right. Uh, we haven't said the title. Land of Snow and Ashes is the Land book. of Snow and Ashes by Petra Rautianen. And um, it's it's her it's a debut and it, it sounds very, very strong one. Yeah, it does. And you know, it's it's not it's not particularly usual that a debut you know, a debut novel will get translated into mm. English. Um, but it, 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 unlike the Japanese novel we we're talking about, this was published very recently. I think it came out in Finland two years ago, and it did extremely well over there. And um, the excellent Pushkin Press, who really are brilliant. I mean, they they, they do such great stuff um, with fiction and translation. They've put some of their heft behind it. And, um, I, you know, I hope, it, I hope it's widely read. Slightly annoyingly, it's another book that I'm going to have to put on my reading list. But I, mean, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> you know, the heart sinks when I read another incredibly enthusiastic review about a brilliant sounding book. But it really does sound great. Well, look, we'll have to leave it there. We've done We've done France. We've done Japan. Baltimore and Finland. Um, so, so there you have it. Toby, thank you very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Toby Lishtig, Russell Williams and Nelly Caprielian. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.